Welcome back to Downstream, a podcast about the present and future of streaming media. This is episode three for November 3rd, 2021. I'm Jason Snell, and I'm joined as always by Julia Alexander, Senior Strategy Analyst at Parrot Analytics. Julia, welcome back. Thank you. How are you doing, Jason? Uh, doing good. Uh, it's it's full on fall. We passed Halloween. Clocks are about to go back. You know, I'm getting into the uh, I live in California, so we really only have two seasons. There's the kind of warmer, <laughs> drier season and the cooler, hopefully wetter season. And so I've shifted into season two. How are you doing? It, pretty good. I mean, it's definitely fall here in New York City. I just got my um, booster vaccine today. So I'm feeling a little tired. My arm hurts, but feeling relieved, that's, feeling good. That's good. That's good. I got mine last week. Um, it's good to be boosted, oh, nice. I say. It's good to be boosted. <laughs> yeah. We have some follow-up, which is always very exciting when people write in. We ha- we'll have letters at the end, as we do. We got lots of letters. We got lots of letters from Australia. That's interesting. Uh, and we'll get to it. But uh, listener Tyler sent in a link to a Hollywood Reporter story. And and I love this. I love so. Uh, being in journalism, I mean, I know some people may not pick up on this or care about it, but I think it's a delightful report from January from Leslie Goldberg. We were talking last time, uh, had a little digression about uh, how Warner Media probably should do a Harry Potter TV series that would be like printing money. Like that would be a franchise that probably would work best in a kind of seasonal Hogwarts, uh, you know, year at Hogwarts kind of format, just like the books. Even if you made new stories based on a new class at Hogwarts and moved them through. And there was Leslie Goldberg and the Hollywood Reporter January 25th reported that uh, Harry Potter live action TV series is in early development at HBO Max. And what I really love about this report, this is the journalism part, is uh, Leslie Goldberg reports all this and she's she's laying it all down there like they're talking to writers. Uh, they're exploring various ideas. They're uh, they're just exploring with various creative people what they might what they might do. And then she quotes. Uh, HBO Max and Warner Brothers saying there are no Harry Potter series in development at the studio or on the streaming platform. And then she continues on with her report. And I love that because that is a reporter saying, uh, yeah, that's what they said. And I have to report it. But you just read what I wrote, right? <laughs> like This is really <laughs> happening. It's not like whatever they say, here's their quote. But this story wouldn't exist if I hadn't been told that this is actually happening. So it is uh, nothing, I think, since then about it, but it sounded so early. And I imagine at some point, um, if they line it up, the challenge is, you know, lining up the, the all the rights and J.K. Rowling's approval and all of that to it. But it sounds like they're at the very least, they've been talking to people about what would you do if you did a Harry Potter show, right? Like, what would that be like just to explain? Would you be interested in doing that with people in Hollywood? So that's our follow. Yeah, what one would hope that of the four, four or five IP that Warner Media could really exploit and uh, deliver upon for years to come, they'd be talking to people about Harry Potter pretty early on. We'll see what happens with Discovery. Well, I'm you know Warner Brothers will, right. will be left alone, but I'm sure. Uh, there will be some conversations about what that looks like with new management and what they want to do with the Harry Potter franchise. Right. Once that gets approved, they'll, presumably there'll be yet another uh, series of executive changes, right? That's next year. But yeah. Jason yeah. Kalar may be gone at that point, but he's still in charge for now. Um I, I also wanted to add in, uh, sort of last minute, a fun link to a tweet that you retweeted that... Um, delighted me, which was 
Uh, Franklin Leonard tweeted, how long till a major streaming service drops an episodic series, one episode per day for a week? And I love like rolling a grenade into the whole, do you drop it in a binge or do you release it weekly debate <laughs> with this statement, which is just delightful. Like, wh- why would you not do it every, every day for a week and have everybody talk about it every night? Uh, that's a great idea. Yeah, and just make it like five episodes or six episodes come through and have a perfect little mini series that people binge, but also do it over the course of six days. Um, mm-hmm. I would be into it. It reminded me we were talking about this just before we started hit uh, recording. Um, and HBO did this years ago with In Treatment, which they did. It was a, it was a weekly series, but it was daily, and every day was a different patient. So you would follow their treatment weekly, but each day would be a different person. Person, um, in terms of like the recurring cast and i'd be very down for that to come back in some way somehow with some streaming service um and i think with netflix too we kind of saw them lean into the more um weekly movie release with fear street and that worked out really well for them and so i'm sure netflix is much more open to looking at interesting ways of releasing and distributing their content than others might be especially others that are tied into a linear broadcaster cable system still um but netflix could come out and say yeah we'll do five or six episodes of something and we'll drop it over the course of a week and i would i would be very into it yeah it's like a little event uh kind of thing you know a little bit more than a binge drop and a little bit less than a than a releasing it over six weeks or eight weeks or ten weeks the the one that i yes. thought of as an example that uh, the bbc experimented with this they did a season a mini series basically season of torchwood which was their doctor who spinoff called children of earth and that was a five episode mini series that dropped on five consecutive days and they broadcast it on five consecutive days in the summer which you know so that's for the bbc that was probably like well we don't have anything going on right now we'll just put this show on uh, on BBC One for yeah. a week. But again, interesting idea. They're probably, people have experimented this, I'm sure, um, you know, uh, uh, beyond like who wants to be a millionaire or something like that, but with actual like scripted stuff. Um, but having a streamer do it, that would be fun. This was the Quibi dream. Poor Jeffrey Katzenberg. <laughs> this was, <laughs> this is, if any streaming service was best in tune for it, it was Quibi gone oh. before it had time to shine. Mm. <laughs> um. <laughs> Hey, remember Quibi? <laughs> Moving on, I wanted to uh, talk to you. You had you, there's a there's a story uh, that that you know about that you wrote, I think, on Parrot Analytics' site about Manifest and La Brea. So, for people who don't know, Manifest was an NBC show that was um, that was okay, I guess, ratings-wise, but really got picked up when it was on Netflix and people loved it on Netflix. And it became a hit to the point where NBC canceled it and and Netflix picked it up for a final season. Um, and- right. And, and it, to say that it, yeah, found an audience on Netflix would be like almost um, understatement just yeah. how much of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. Ne- it really was Netflix's show. People thought of it as Netflix's show, despite it running on NBC for three seasons. Yeah, ouch, it's got to hurt. Well, anyway, so they have a new show called La Brea, and and what did you, you know, you you pondered the idea, like, I wonder if this is going to be manifest happening all over again. 
Yeah, so the, so the reason that I looked into it at all was because um, it's earnings season. It's my favorite season. Um, and so during Comcast earnings, they did not disclose any actual contextual numbers for subscriber growth or loss on the Peacock side, which is always a uh, sign of strength for shareholders, I'm sure. Um, and so instead, all that CEO Brian Roberts said, sorry, Comcast CEO Brian Roberts said was, La Brea is our best performing new show on Peacock. That, again, no context there. We don't know what that means, especially considering we don't know how well Peacock is doing. It could mean that there's five people tuning into it and it's their best. Um, <laughs> could mean there's, you know, 10 million and it's their best. But what I thought was interesting about the way that he said it was that it's a linear ratings hit, which means it's doing well on NBC. Um, and to an extent it is. Um, and it's also doing well on Peacock. So I looked into Manifest. And what I found, the reason I kind of do- I-, I dove into it was because if we look at the demand, so if we look at kind of the general interest and appetite for Manifest outside of linear television, the demand for it is on par with La Brea. In terms of we saw Manifest increase, and it increased, it increased every season. And then it saw a massive uptick by the time it hit Netflix and it opened up to more audiences. But the demand was always there. And so La Brea is in this really interesting position where it might not be a ratings juggernaut because there are, are baseball games. And there are other things that take away attention. And also just many people not tuning in to nightly uh, or even weekly um, appointment television at a certain time. But they are finding it online. They're finding it via streaming on Mm -hmm. Peacock. They're finding it via peer-to-peer streaming. And the data that I saw illustrates, um, or illuminates rather, that La Brea is on track to being or could be something like Manifest. Of course, something like Manifest just happens to take off. It resonates with a group of people. People are into it. That might not happen with La Brea. But the numbers all suggest that it's on a really good path. So the question that I had in this at the the end of this kind of insights um, piece was, if you're NBC and you're hoping that La Brea is the show that brings in customers and, and so listeners of Downstream will know, I refer to that as high acquisition titles. If La Brea is a high acquisition title, but it's still not doing what you needed to do because people are still not on Peacock and they're not aware of it, there is a potential where you make a deal with Netflix or Hulu, Hulu especially because Comcast has a deal with, with Hulu, and you say, we're going to put the first season on here non-exclusively, but it opens it up to 50 million people, you know, 45, 50 million, as opposed to hoping that 5, 10, 12 million people see it and will and will tune into it. And so I think what we are really seeing in this era of the linear to streaming progression is what is the best platform for discoverability and then how do you expand on that to really build out your empire? Um, and if La Brea is it, which it could be, I think that goes to show that NBC can still make some pretty decent hits. They just need to absolutely change their distribution strategy, even the way they're thinking of it now. Is I, so. This is really interesting because on one level we're talking about the details of something that we probably all thought about a while ago, but didn't really think about like how it would happen. Which is, it's the details of what happens when traditional broadcast networks are all transitioning to a world where linear TV is fading away, and so they they have to fill their airtime until they abandon it, I guess, uh, on network TV, and then people still watch on network TV, but. You know, a show like La Brea is not just a network TV show. It is the network, in fact, like maybe only serves as a kind of like a a promotional tool in a way where you can say it's on. This show exists. You might want to watch it. Put it on a baseball game. Put it on a football game as you know, put ads in for it. 
but a lot of people are going to end up experiencing it on streaming. They're going to see it on Peacock. And you see that now a lot in the advertising of shows where it's all it's almost always now Tuesday night Tuesday nights on NBC and streaming on Peacock, right? It's yes. uh, the one that struck me recently was all of CBS's Survivor ads are now Survivor Wednesdays on CBS and streaming on Paramount Plus, right? And that's just that's where we are. And so you get into these questions of, well, how do you judge success and how do you build success beyond that? Like, do you do you go to a competitive quote unquote streamer just to get it in front of other people to see if it catches fire? Um, and I, it's so this is fascinating. And uh, yeah, on on top of it, like NBC doesn't really have an international strategy. I would imagine that it they have a partner where La Brea is going um, internationally, although I don't know that. I don't know what that partner would be. Yeah. And they also are um, figuring out some form of like, it's not a merger. I guess the official term would be a partnership with um, Viacom CBS in Europe. And that is their attempt to really take on Disney Plus, Netflix, Amazon Prime Video and and HBO Max, um, which is much more heavy into the international play currently. Um, I think also to your exact point, the advertisers want more targetable ads too. And so streaming, especially the ad supported versions is what I'm saying. um, They can now go and say, we know we have way more information about the audience uh, base, the consumer base that you want. This is also where your consumer base is. I think about John Langrav, who's the head of FX, and he was saying, you know, the industry has changed so much in the last 10 years. Like, when was the last time that a water cooler big show premiered on linear television? They're all moving to the streamers. That's where a lot of the companies do have linear channels are saying, we're going to put our big bets on streaming services. And I think at the same time that you have this La Brea situation, which is, can this be something that really helps Peacock grow? It's still doing somewhat well in linear. You have the opposite in a lot of ways, which is with American Crime Story Impeachment, where there was a story in the New York Times recently that was just like, this show is should have been a massive show, but no one seems to be talking about it. Like there's, you know, there's good reviews, but it's just lost in the kind of chaos of television. And this is a show, though, that is nowhere streaming unless you have cable. By the time that it hits Netflix in 2022... Uh, this will become in my a top trending show on, on Netflix. There will be people who tune into it. But if you take away that easy distribution, that easy access point, and you take away where 200 million people are watching, they're just not going to go and and, fi- and seek it out elsewhere. And so I think that's where, if I'm NBC Universal, I'm thinking about it, the fact that I have La Brea, and I, I think it could be a pretty big show on the level of Manifest. And I saw what happened with Manifest, where I canceled it because the ratings between season two and three dwindled pretty heavily, and it just didn't make any sense to care anymore And when we can invest in new talent, and then seeing what happened on Netflix. It's the type of thing where you go, do we sign a one-year, two-year non-exclusive agreement so we can bring people to Peacock, or we do next day of, of season two on Peacock and try to bring people over that way and give one of our seasons to Netflix. Like it's an interesting position to put yourself in because you have the show, but you do not have the audience. And the audience is increasingly unaware of what this is. And they're increasingly not into the interested in the idea of having a new streaming service. But if it's on Netflix and it's something that they get invested in pretty heavily, they might go to Peacock if it means they can watch their new favorite show. I also think about promotion, like wasted energy of promotion. Like you're talking about the impeachment show becoming mm-hmm. a hit when it shows up on streaming on Netflix in two years or in a year and a half or when at whatever the window is there. And I think about how much of a waste it is. You launch a show, right? You launch a show and you announce it and you advertise it and you push it on your linear networks and you put it on billboards and you do whatever else you do with it. 
because you're launching your show. And then it's not on streaming anywhere. And then it's on streaming two years later. Well, you have, even if it gets a little promotion when it goes on to streaming later, which probably won't get as much, like you have wasted all of your energy because no one will remember it in two years and they can't find it now. So you've just, you've just frustrated them. And that's why the, um, Oh, the one-two punch makes more sense. And I get you don't want to cannibalize if you're a linear TV network. You don't want to cannibalize your entire TV audience. But at this point, it feels like you're just missing a whole other audience by not making that stuff available and promoting it together and saying it's here and here. Either way is fine. Watch it on Peacock. Watch it on NBC. We literally don't care. Please watch it. Yeah, exactly. We beg you. Um, it- well, I mean, that was the thing with impeachment, too, where the number one Google or sorry, like after impeachment premiere date, one of the top five Google's um, search trending topics was how to watch on Hulu. Oh, because Disney, to its credit, Disney has actually marketed FX on Hulu very well right. to the point that people are like, cool, it's FX. I watch on Hulu, which is in itself a massive undertaking to accomplish. So congrats to Disney there. But then they're like. Well, I can't watch this here. Why can't I watch this here? Okay, well, American Crime Story is on Netflix, but I can't get this here. Why isn't it there? So you've got poor consumers who are interested in this who don't have cable having to read about negotiation deals from 2016 between Fox and Netflix. And it's like people don't care. Like they care about this, but they're not going to care enough to sign up for cable. They're not going to care enough to say, okay, cool. Well, I'm super bothered about it. They're either going to pirate it some way or they're going to wait till it's on Netflix in January and go, cool. And at the end of the day, American Crime Story Impeachment, it's a great show. I'm watching it. I like it. It's not the type of show that you're like, if I don't watch this now, the whole thing's going to be spoiled for me. It's like, spoiler alert, we know what happens with Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton and everything that goes on there. And so I think in those situations, when you have this massive show that you've put so much money into and you want the most people to see it, it's a hard pill to swallow knowing they're just not going to until it's on something else that they're already paying for and they have access to and that they can probably watch over the course of a weekend. And so I think that's a tough situation for all the um, the studios and the networks who are still creating content for their linear networks because, to your earlier point, the advertisers are still there. The advertisers sure. still want to be there. But knowing the audience that we want to reach, that really important 18 to 34 demo just doesn't care and they're willing to wait unless it is something that they're extremely invested in watching that weekend. And we saw that with HBO Now, right? And then we saw the huge drop off when Game of Thrones would end and people would be like, cool, I'm done with this. I'm not going to pay $15 a month anymore. Um, And so I think having these kind of deals that are like, I'm going to help you because your audience on Netflix will probably love La Brea and they might, it might prevent them from canceling or they're going to have a new show and they're engaged in and you're going to help us, but we're going to have an NBC thing here. And then we're going to promote super hard that this show that you love is is going to be on Peacock exclusively season two. Um, is a is an interesting position to be in. Now, as I raised in my piece, the other concern is that this is insinuating that audience behavior dictates they will jump ship and they will go to another streaming platform to watch something. Maybe, I mean, this is Viacom CBS's whole strategy is that if things exist not exclusively on other platforms that have wider um, nets of audiences and therefore they're more discoverable, they will come to Paramount+. Plus. Right. I would argue a lot of people are just going to be like, yeah, yeah, I'll wait. Fine. I'll wait for the next season to show up on Netflix, and yeah, we'll see what happens with it. And if I end right. up not watching it, there's so many other shows. I mean, you but might something like you'll you'll mm. capture a percentage, though, right? I mean, that's the idea. Is yes. what what is that percentage? But the the idea is, well, you're going to get a percentage where like I want to see what happens next. Oh, that's on Paramount Plus. All right, yes. then I'll go there. And the other people will be like, yeah, there's other stuff on Netflix. I'll be fine. 
Exactly. And I think a show like La Brea, if it follows the manifest kind of trajectory, it is the type of, um, and I say this with love because I like both shows, it is the type of kind of uh, easy to digest, uh, snackable trash. (laughs) And I say that with love that you want to watch. Like you're like, you know what? I will. I'll go find wherever it is because I just want to see how it ends. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. And it's pulling you along in, in 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 the plot. And that makes you more motivated. I also wonder, I gotta I wanna flip this around for a second, which is at some point if you're Netflix, do you look at this and go, Yeah, no. Like we're not gonna use our audience to build your intellectual property so that you can sell them on spending money on your streaming service and you know, when we're in the business of doing our streaming. I wonder I wonder at what point where somebody like Netflix is just like what no <laughs> what's in it for us to use you to promote i mean it gets some content on but then at the end you're going to dangle the next season and it's off of our air um what do you think do, do they do, is netflix just so big that they don't care or or would there come a time where netflix is sort of like I, I, we're not going to be your uh promotion strategy for your own streaming service I think it's the million-dollar question. It's the billion-dollar question. It is how much do we need these guys versus how much can we survive on our own? And this is what Ted and uh, and Reed, who are the co-CEOs of Netflix, have always kind of reiterated over the last few years is we know that these guys are going to want to bring their content back to their mm-hmm. exclusive streaming platforms because it's very valuable content. It has an audience base. And if you're Disney or... Viacom, NBC Universal, or Warner, you also have shows that have run for decades, which means you've got a pretty good catalog of, of just bingeable entertainment. Um, so Netflix's whole thing is we want to produce your new favorite hit and your series of next favorite hits and then ha- build up our library to be 50 to 60% Netflix originals. That said, what we're seeing happen via all these different kind of input, uh, uh, data inputs that we see is that Viacom, CBS shows, NBC Universal shows perform exceptionally well on Netflix. You know, there's a reason Netflix uh, licensed the rights to Seinfeld. There's a reason they have the Viacom right. CBS deal. So is they it, don't have. Is it a. The idea is to find what the good business relationship, what a symbiotic business relationship is with them, where they, you know, if I'm NBC, I say, well, I want you to have, I want you to put the first season of La Brea on as a teaser, but, you know, it's part of a larger deal where you're also getting some catalog content that's going to be, that Netflix is going to be happy to have. Yeah, I mean, I think inside those negotiation rooms, there are certain questions that the Netflix team is going to raise. Do we have the global rights to this? Do we have the global exclusive rights Uh, to this? Is this something that is going to perform just as well uh, in Turkey as it is here? That's a great point. And um, and we've got some letters later from Australians about about being very U.S.-centric. A lot of the shenanigans that are happening, a lot of the strategy is U.S.-centric, but there is also a lot going on internationally. That's, though, I think a really excellent point, which is, if whether it's Netflix or Amazon or someone else, if NBC has an international partner for La Brea, then that's maybe part of the deal, right? Is like, well, what's your motivation to promote our our show in the U.S. when we're going to put all future seasons on Peacock? And the answer may be, yeah, but you're our international pro- uh, partner, and all future seasons are going on Netflix everywhere else. Yeah, Netflix. Lo- yeah, Netflix loves this. Netflix. If you look at a lot of U.S. shows um, in international territories, Netflix just slaps the Netflix original brand yeah. on it, and it's it's not like they call Riverdale Netflix original in Ireland, and it's like yeah. all the Star Trek shows. Well, some of the Star Trek shows that are on Netflix, they're all Netflix originals, but you know, in the U.S., they're Paramount Plus originals now. Um, and it's it's yeah. super great branding for Netflix, right? It is them being able to be like, you don't know Star Trek is a CBS show, so therefore you think it's a Netflix yeah. show, and that's pretty great for us so i think 
where Netflix has the high ground, or not the high ground, but yeah, I guess, where Netflix has the high ground, they get to be able to say, like, we have the biggest audience. You need us for your new shows right. to find Discovery globally. Where NBC Universal, Viacom, Warner come in is saying, yes, you don't have a Grey's Anatomy, a Seinfeld, a New Girl, or right. a, a, a Simpsons, right? Like, you don't have these things that we've had for decades that audiences are going to stick around month after month on. Much um, after much after they're done watching your new hit show in the course of a weekend. Uh, and so that's where they have the high ground, where they come in and say, you need us as well. I think it's your excellent point, Jason. I think it's that combination of, cool, yeah, we want La Brea. We also want, you know, non-exclusive rights or exclusive rights to three other NBC shows. Like, we right. want these. We think this works well in the majority of our territories that we're in. We want to be able to carry them, and we like adding that to our thing. You know, is is NBC Universal going to ever give up The Office at this point? Not right now. Like, that's not what they're, no. Right. But does NBC Universal go, do we need a ER? You know, like, do yeah. we need every uh, right. Real Th- Housewives? Like, what Rock, do we need? You can, maybe you could have 30 Rock, right? Like... Exactly. Like you guys do this on a certain basis. We mm-hmm. go into windowing. And I think that's where they find this common ground until, again, you know, Peacock hits 60 million subscribers until right. Netflix sees that the majority of their viewers, when they're done with Netflix new shows, are watching Netflix old shows. Then it's a whole other ballgame. But for now, they all kind of need each other. Interesting. Yeah, and it's very complex when you throw in international and you throw in uh, like uh, all the catalog stuff like yeah, this is this is complicated stuff. Uh, it's fascinating. I wanted to go before we move on. We, we've talked about demand. Demand is sort of the big story of Parrot Analytics. Could you talk a little bit about what demand is and how you measure it? Because I feel like we never really talked about that, and it's yeah. at the core of so much of what you do. Is this idea that you know the numbers that are quoted by all the streaming services are self-serving, and the defi- definitions can change, and they release them only when they want to release them. Um, and so Parrot Analytics is doing. Uh, some other methodology in order to determine what what demand there is for programming on streaming. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. It's the one that we definitely get the most. Um, the best way to think about it is that up until very recently, the main measurement tool that we've had, and, and you guys have heard uh, Jason and I talk about this, that people had for is something successful, it was a one-to-one viewership metric. It was in like Nielsen Homes or whatever it might be, it was this many people or this many homes watch this many minutes of this show or movie. And therefore, we can translate that into what the kind of success that is. And this really worked for networks who wanted to play other stuff up, but also advertisers, mainly advertisers who wanted to know where to put their money and where to put their um, th- their spots. Over the last 15 years, as streaming has become much more prevalent, the idea of that metric of success has changed significantly because people aren't just interacting with a show at 8 p.m. and then 8.30 p.m. and 9 p.m. The way they're interacting with the show, the way they are um, creating for that show, the way that they are embracing that show or, or whatever it might be um, leads to all these different data points from TikTok to Twitter to Wikipedia to Google Trends to to peer-to-peer, which is just piracy, like all these different input signals that we have for, is the show actually valuable? And so I think what we spend a lot of time doing is what does that demand, which is basically how much is attention and focus is there globally on this show or whatever, this person, whatever it might be, um, and how does that add value to your streaming service? How does that add value to those producers who are, who are doing whatever they're doing? And so we look at something like Netflix as, and I do especially, as a bundle. We look at I look at Disney Plus as a bundle offering. I look at HBO Max as a bundle offering. 
you take out the channels and you put in the titles and that's your new bundle. So something like Grey's Anatomy, Criminal Minds, Gilmore Girls, and Stranger Things. Those are four different networks producing something, but they're all available on Netflix. And so those independent value creates this unbeatable kind of Netflix bundle, which is why subscribers will pay month after month. So what we do, and my job specifically, is to look at all of this and kind of determine, okay, what does the demand for this show or this um, bundling of shows or whatever it might be tell us about where where audience interest is, but where audience interest is going, about where you might want to launch something in Turkey or in Portugal or in um, South Korea as opposed to just in the United States. And we kind of just do that and essentially consult with some companies and then help out some other people um, by figuring out what's the best thing for your company going forward? What's the best show? What's the best move? Is it anime? Who knows? Is it South Korean dramas? I don't know. Like, but there is always something for a specific interest that people are looking into. But demand for the for the piece of this podcast, demand is simply where the we're seeing it, um, quite a bit of attention being given, and our attention tends to translate into necessity, and necessity tends to translate into subscription. All right. So if you engage that interest, then a lot of stuff unfolds from there. Exactly. I like I like this because what you're saying too. I mean, you mentioned it in passing. Is if everybody's searching pirate sites for a show mm-hmm. or if everybody's searching for something and can't find it like you mentioned the google trends earlier for how do i find this show that is on fx but not on hulu like how do how do i find this show that's uh that's a signal even if they're unsuccessful or even if they're pirating it it's a signal of demand for you to analyze yeah i think one of the trends that we see quite often um over the last i should say two three years is anime which has always been prevalent in the united states but which was very heavily pirated you know 20 years ago anime is now inconsistently some of the most in-demand programming globally and so that's why you see netflix and sony and warner really double down on anime disney doing visions with a bunch of anime artists and directors to try to tap into that audience we're looking at all of this information and kind of being like, this is where people are headed. Um, this is why people are interested in this. This is why we're seeing this. You know, like we had a question a few a few weeks ago from a, a client who remained unnamed. And it was how often is South Korean talent and also content traveling? Why is it traveling? And you have this beautiful moment of the proliferation of, the, of streaming services, including Spotify, YouTube, which we forget about a lot, but YouTube. Um, Netflix and in general, and all of a sudden you've got K-pop and K-dramas that were not accessible before Accessible before are on Spotify and on YouTube, and anyone can find it. And so then you've just got this massive outpouring of new fan base who you can kind of um, talk to. And so we do this a lot with the streaming services who are like, you're a global focused group. You're no longer just thinking of the United States. And how do you take in all these billions and billions of data inputs and use that to figure out what the best move might be? Of course, partnered with very brilliant creative people who have to just make good stuff. Let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, Another topic that I wanted to get to, um, you and I are both sports fans. And (laughs) one of the more fascinating uh, aspects of the change to streaming is how it overturns some business models with regard to live sports. Of course, live sports Mm -hmm. has been up to now largely the a bulwark against cord cutting and that there were all of these deals made with uh, cable companies the best one being uh, i think the la dodgers signed a 25 year 8.35 billion dollar tv deal 
in 2013, which at the time, like, what a bold move to think that 25 years out (laughs) from 2013 that we would have any idea what anything was. But that was a cable, essentially regional sports network cable deal. The idea there is, haha, you want to cut the cord, but you can't because you watch sports, right? That was the idea. (laughs) The problem is a lot of people cut the cord anyway. And young people have cut the cord or never had the Mm -hmm. cord. And they are living in a world without sports. And that's bad. That's bad for the growth of the sport. It's bad for uh, their business because they've got young people who are not willing to pay for cable but might be interested in the sport. And so they're a customer that they're turning away. It's all – it's so complicated, but it's also very bad. Um, And huge amounts of sport – revenue for for teams um is bound up in regional sports network tv deals for not for the nfl which has has national deals in the u.s but but regional deals for baseball and hockey and basketball and i i mentioned this and want to talk to you about it because uh a couple weeks ago josh kosman in the new york post reported that major league baseball is investigating launching a nationwide streaming service for home teams it already has an out of market service but this is mm-hmm. for home teams that could launch as early as 2023 and that they're also discussing this with the NBA and the NHL because they have the same problem which is if you can't cut if you cut the cord you can't other than going to one of these over the top services like YouTube TV or Fubo um, you can't get sports without being on cable or satellite. And those are traditional cable bundles just moved into a streaming thing. So mm-hmm. regional sports networks in the U.S., it's a mess. These are the these are your home team for the NBA, the NHL, and Major League Baseball. Um, they get carried by, you know, in traditional bundles. They get money from every single person who subscribes to the cable company in your area, which is a lot of money. So... How do you, if you're, if you're baseball, let's say, how do you turn your back on your cable partner where you're making an enormous amount of money, a lot of it from people who don't even watch the channel, but you're losing a whole other audience potentially forever and you mm-hmm. want to give them something to give you money to. And so you end you end up in this very weird situation where they're in now where there are a whole bunch of individual deals and uh and Major League Baseball and to a lesser extent but still the NBA and the NHL look at it and think what do we do because the regional sports networks are kind of in free fall and the business model kind of doesn't work anymore because they're paying for people to stay on cable and the people aren't <laughs> staying there. So we end up you know it's a huge mess. And um, I'm not sure this is an interesting story because it suggests that they know it's a huge mess and they are going to do something resembling anything about it. I'm still not quite sure how they make the economics work other than to maybe stop the bleeding a little bit. Um, what do you think about all of this? I mean, as, as a local sports fan, like I would, I pay for Fubo TV now and a big part of it is for sports. It's for, for, my you know San Francisco Giants games during baseball season and so this is uh is interesting but you know I'm paying $60 a month for Fubo and you know so you could do that but there are people who are like I'm not going to pay $60 a month just to watch a baseball oh 
Yeah, I feel you. I, I literally the other day was sitting at home excited to put on my um, Raptors, which I would have had access to, but versus the Knicks, which is my partner's team, and opened it up and was like, can't play. And I was like, right, because I have YouTube TV. I was like, right, it's blocked. Like, it's mm-hmm. blocked because we have, we have to go to the regional sports. And Yankees fans, of course, will know this. This, um, Sorry to bring up the Yankees, Jason, but Yankees oh, okay. fans will know this um, very well, this pain. I agree with you. I think you hit the nail exactly on the head which is the amount of money that they are getting paid to carry these and the the amount of money that they're uh, for distributing them and for you know is a pain in the um butt to consumers but if you're still going to offer it at you know 20 30 dollars home market games and you're hoping that there's enough people who will transfer over but also that you will sign up new subscribers that still doesn't offset necessarily the losses that you're going to take and the idea right. here i imagine like any streaming service is you got to give us 5 6 years to become profitable like we need those years it's really hard with sports when the leagues are the ones saying like, yes, we want younger fans because it turns out young fans are not tuning into baseball the way they should. Or you have Adam Silver, who's over at the NBA, saying we have young fans, but we're trying to figure out better ways to get them into it. You've got, um, uh, I think it's Gary Bettman over at the NHL saying similar stuff where he's like, we know we have younger fans who want to watch, but they are not going to pay for cable. And there's no way to watch mm-hmm. home games. So there's this idea that they are clearly seeing demand for home games from a younger audience that they the people the, but the question is will those people pay for it it's so right. easy for me i was just you know the other day i, I was out um and I, I i usually watch cnbc on youtube tv but i couldn't access it on my phone it was a whole thing and i literally could watch cnbc via like a google search in five seconds <laughs> and it was like there you go and i and you know, my, my brother who's at home and is obsessed with sports he doesn't pay for any of them and it's like it's he's like it's so easy to literally find any website streaming this and i think that's the issue that they're going into which is like maybe the accessibility and the the ease of it and the high quality and the not lagging and the lack of advertisements um like are the obnoxious advertisements maybe that is what draws people in but if they can get something for free or if they're going to a bar to watch it and you're hoping that you can get 50 percent, 40 percent of people to sign up who are currently signed up to cable I think they also forget how complicated it is to call cable and cancel it. And so I think people who are like, I just want this for my sports thing are going to try to call and cancel and Charter or whoever is going to be like, mm. <laughs> well, they're going to make this exceptionally difficult. That was one of the thoughts that I had, which is I wonder. So if I'm paying $60 a month for for Fubo and I'm getting all these channels and, you know, locals and all this other stuff, um. And but sports is motivating me, and somebody would look at that and be like, "Well, all I want is the baseball games. I don't want to do this." It's like, okay, but you could you could potentially price something at a comparable price, only in season, and market it just as a sports streaming thing or a, or or your team streaming thing. And I wonder if the simplicity of that would make people say, "Sure, I'll sign up for that," even if. Yes. <laughs> they couldn't they wouldn't have to pay much more to just get an over the top service that carries the the sports team that they want and i understand that in some regions you can't do that i'm fortunate that in my region i can get a service uh that my regional sports networks are on fubo and so that i can get them and i can see them but I wonder if there's a simplicity issue. I mean, piracy is already, already going to be there. Maybe the answer is the piracy is yeah. the way that you get people uh, into it early. And then when they get a job and they have money, they're like, well, that, that was fine, but this is easier. I can just pay and have it. But like the but, truth is, mm-hmm. when, I, when I talk about the bulwark uh, against cord cutting, the fact is that the Dodgers TV rights, if you, if you 
could charge every Dodger fan who wants to watch the Dodgers on TV $50 a month. Um, it still wouldn't be worth $8.35 billion over 25 years. It's inflated by the fact that they're get what they're getting out of it is it's just like direct TV paying for an NFL Sunday ticket all those years ago is you're getting people on direct TV who would otherwise right. use cable because, and that's worth more than just the money you make on NFL Sunday ticket. And so when you take away the bulwark against uh, cord cutting, the value of that to the cable providers is less, which means that fundamentally these sports leagues are are reaching the point now where, you know, they know that they're going to get less money. They're just they're going to get less money, and it's going to really hurt. But now they're they're trying to I think stop the bleeding and say, well, we got to do something because we're just exactly. losing losing not having a product here is killing us. My now back in the day. On other podcasts, when I would talk about cord cutting out, I always, I'd use the phrase, they always get their money. Because everybody always imagined that in the era of cord cutting, they cut the cord and it's like, oh, well, I saved all that money on cable and things are great now. And now you look around at all those services that are out there and all the subscriptions that everybody's paying. It's like, see, see, they're going to get their money. They're like, they're, they're not, this isn't a great savings. They're gonna, it's going to change where the money goes, but they're going to get their money. And that's what I think about this is if they do this, Everybody's going to envision this amazing thing where you pay $10 a month and you get all of the local sports. It's like it's not going to it's going to be more expensive than you think. And it might even have more limitations than you think. But still, I think it's death right now. We were talking earlier about like where's the show? Yeah. It's not on streaming. It's death not to have your product on a streaming service. And I think having yeah. it be wrapped in something like YouTube TV or Fubo is not the same. Like I I think you need a product that is, maybe it's NBA, NHL, Major League Baseball all wrapped together. Maybe it's the individual leagues. But I think they're at the point now where they got to start unwinding some of these regional sports deals to the point where they can say, at least, look, if you don't want anything but your local team, there is a way for you to pay us and get it. And right now there isn't. There literally is not a way to do that that doesn't involve going into some sort of bundle whether it's direct TV or it's your local cable company or it's one of these over-the-top services like YouTube TV. I mean, that was always the funny thing about... I, I subscribed to NBA League Pass, and for me, it was worth it because I was living in New York, so my IP address... And this could be wrong tech terminology. If it is, just let All me right. know. Uh, but my IP address was in New York, and I could get League Pass and watch Toronto games. Exactly. And that was... I was like, great, that's my home team, which is amazing. Right. But the out of market were... the out of market fans have been pretty well served, other than like there's some blackouts that are weird where you're not in right. the market but you're still blacked out. But yeah, um that's that's exactly right. I, I do MLB TV and even though I'm a lo- fan of a local team, I like baseball and I watched lots of Jerry <laughs> Remy, the the broadcaster for the Red Sox just died. And it was like I watched a lot of games with Jerry Remy as the commentator because it was the afternoon on the West Coast and there was a Red yeah. Sox game on and so I'd pop it on. That's that part's been great, right? But but if you're in market, forget it. It's, no, it is, and that, and so it's like the things that they're going to have to wrestle with, which are not um, major issues in terms of when you are launching something like this. And to your point exactly, Jason, like the teams just need people to be aware that there is an easy way to watch games that is affordable. Right. You 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 aren't the issue that you clarity maybe right? To- just the clarity of it. Like you can go here and you get this, and does it have this channel? All that. It's like no, 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 no. You want Team X? You pay us. You get an app for team x it shows the games <laughs> like right. that would be helpful 
Exactly. And so so the ones that are at that point where they're like, oh, my God, people are aware that we exist. Uh, that's great. You know, they're going to run into the same issues that a lot of the other streamers have. You're going to have password sharing, which is sure. harder to do with cable. You're going to have all these other stuff. But if your goal is just letting people know, hey, baseball is really fun. You should come watch baseball or hockey gets insanely violent. And that's fun to watch sometimes. Or, yeah, I mean, everything that's not football <laughs> right. is just like this. These are really fun games. You can watch it for an affordable price. Because what we have right now is this weird dichotomy between either to your exact point you either have to get into this like digital bundle or somehow or cable and you're, you're dealing with that or you have um uh you've got league pass and you're like i'm gonna watch out of market games on this app and that's fine or you have uh just just like the, the what the nhl is doing where the nhl is d- divvying up their games and they're like half are going to hbo max half are going to espn plus and right. we're gonna put them over there and you're still looking at in game markets or sorry in home markets right um and it's like the idea that giving people the ease and accessibility to their local sports teams for affordable price is good. And I think the teams are at a death point, especially in non-NFL leagues. Uh, and they're going like, we have to figure out a way to get people into this. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Is it going to make the cable operators mad? Sure. But like this has been coming for a very long time. Right. I do wonder – what happens if there are – I mean, I, I assume they wait for rights and stuff to come up because they're not going to want to so, get sued over it. So this is an interesting angle, and and it's touched on a little bit in the New York Post report. There are mm-hmm. – obviously, there the, the Sportsnet deal in L.A. Um, is a problem that would need to be right. – um, there would need to be negotiation there. And these are all individual negotiations that would have to happen with each of these little contracts and each of these markets, right? But – one of the things that the Post point, report points out is that some of these, a lot of these um, companies, these these partners that are running uh, these networks, um, like Sinclair, which bought all of the Fox uh, Sportsnet, <laughs> regional sports networks from Disney as a condition of Disney's purchase of Fox. Sinclair paid a lot of money and they're paying a lot of rights fees and it Reports suggest that Sinclair is in dire financial straits, that there is too much money going out and not enough money going in. And they've tried to get they've they've fully embraced gambling and they've made a partnership where they they branded it all Bally Sports because they have a gambling partnership with the Bally's uh, gambling chain. And uh, they're still sort of desperate. So there's a suggestion here that in many of these markets, because they all overpaid, essentially, they all overpaid, um, that there's a negotiation to be had where the sports leagues come in and say, we're going to reduce your fee in exchange for local streaming. And every contract's different about that. But um, it, it's because it, I thought it would never happen because of this and now it sounds like it's gotten so bad and this these the rights are all so clearly overpriced that the, the question is is there a number figure is there a dollar figure that the the regional sports networks and the leagues can agree on that is beneficial because i think it's gonna i think it's really gonna be painful for for every market that has a big like the dodgers are counting on having and the dodgers value as a franchise includes this eight billion dollar television deal and Mm -hmm. so it's a big deal to say it's we're gonna cut it by half or whatever um that said i'm sure there's value in having this stuff on cable and the cable companies will still find value from it somewhere but uh 
I, I just I don't know how it's going to turn out, but it's fascinating to see that they're actually working on it because I I had kind of given up hope. And the idea that they might create a package with all the leagues where they get your money all year round, that's also kind of fascinating. The idea that they would they would maybe team up and, and instead of it being and probably have more power in the in negotiations, right? If it's all of the the people who have rights in your local market to talking to the regional sports network owner. I don't know. Right. And the, the leagues are just in such an interesting place, these leagues specifically, because they're not niche enough that they're like, you could have a really cool, and I'm not trying to say tennis is niche, but tennis is not the NFL. And so a lot of tennis fans are like, I would pay for a, one that carries all the games internationally. And those exist. There are like a lot of niche sports streaming sure. services. And they're like, we're going to carry all these games and no one's trying to compete. They're not the NFL, where the NFL is extremely profitable still for a lot of the companies. Uh, sorry, for a lot of the cable companies. It's why they're all bidding on it. They might see lower viewership, but the advertisers are still flocking to it, and they sell out that ad inventory super quick. Um, and so there's, that's still necessary. And it's they're a national deal, which allows national right. strategy. So like Paramount right. Plus shows your – a friend of mine on a different podcast was talking about having to watch a football game with his kid. People who listen to Accidental Tech Podcast know I'm talking about Marco. And I was beating my head against my desk while I'm listening to him talk about how he had to go to a bar to watch uh, – or a restaurant to watch a football game with his son because I'm thinking – well, Prime has Thursday Night Football and Paramount Plus has literally your, you know, like CBS football. All the CBS football is on Paramount Plus. And Pe- Peacock has Sunday Night Football. So there are there there are places to get this stuff, right, that are <laughs> streaming because it's a national deal. And so CBS can just decide to stream the football games that they own and it's over. And and ABC or ESPN ABC for Monday Night Football and Peacock uh, because NBC's got Sunday Night Football. So those those are all fine, right? The NFL, like, it's easy. They can just choose what they want for their strategy. It's the problem when you get to your local cable company, you know, that that Sinclair owns the channel in Cincinnati that has the Reds on it, and they're spending a lot of money that they don't have on Reds games. And Major League Baseball comes to them and says, we would like to stream Reds games in Ohio. And they're like, you're killing us here. But we're also already dying, so throw us a lifeline. And there's been some speculation that the leagues might actually even get together and buy out some of these providers like Sinclair and just buy them out because they're desperate to get out of it, get out of the business of regionals. Because regional sports networks also have very little worth beyond these major rights. That's the other part of this is there's a channel there and it's on 24-7, but it's mostly infomercials except for the games and some like pre and post game stuff. So it's very expensive and not really used very well. I mean, perfectly said, and I will just end on this uh, note that sometimes you want to be in a bar when you're watching your team lose terribly. You just, you know, that's a nice place to be. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes you do. Sometimes you need to. Um, All right, let's move on to letters from listeners. And uh, I will say again, you can tweet at us at Downstream Pod and you can email us uh, downstream at relay.fm. Um, got a bunch of letters. I don't know if I can get through all of them, but we'll, we'll try. Uh, listener Tim wrote in to say, Julia, when you said millennials are partial to captions on the latest downstream, I thought, really? And then my daughter sent me a pic of her dog with caption TV in the background. Oh, yeah, she said, I have them turned on everywhere. She's 28, and my stepdaughter at 26 also does it. Um, I did find a, an article that I will put in the show notes by Lance Yulinoff on uh, Medium uh, called Why Gen Z Loves Closed Captioning. 
<laughs> but um, I don't know if I, I know more about it than this. I, all I can say is my daughter is the same way. My daughter always has the captioning on. A, a fun a fun little thing to do in your life is to ask people who went to see Dune in theaters if they wished there was captions and ask oh. people who watched on HBO Max if they did it with captions. I, I, I just watched Dune last night and there is one scene and you probably know the scene. It's when Paul and his mom are in that tent in the desert and there's all this music and sound effects and they're talking very quietly. And because I was watching it on HBO Max, I, I backed it up and turned on captions for about three mm-hmm. minutes because I was like, I have no idea what these people are saying. And uh, I really would like to know because it seems very important. <laughs> so, yeah, I would have really I re- would have been sad if I uh, had watched that in the theater, because even though it would have been spectacular, I would have been like, I have no idea what happened there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it's a real thing. So, so, uh, Tim, that's, that's the answer. Maybe that link will, will help, but it's a real thing. The caption culture is real. Um, Tom wrote in saying, loving the show so far. I have many questions about ARPU, average revenue per per user is what that is, and gradual price increases. What's the end game for these services? Do you think Netflix has an ultimate goal in mind when it comes to pricing, or will it just keep hiking until it cannot retain customers anymore? Could the market withstand 25 per month 40 60 surely at some point the frog is boiled will this inevitably lead to market consolidation into the biggest two or three players once the money dries up um what do you think what what is what's the end game for streaming services of raising their fees it is uh everyone's least favorite and also most favorite word which is diversify diversify they need to Diversify because they know they know that by the time Netflix reaches sixty dollars a month, which we will not get to. But if the, if Netflix ever did, you'd have a lot of people saying uh, cable was this, and I also got sports, uh, and I you know wasn't just um, the Witcher's nineteenth spinoff. Uh, we're not going to get there. I think what we are seeing a lot of the streaming services do. We'll get to a place of about you know, maybe 20, 21, 22 for the most popular streaming plan. Uh, and so to put that in context, Netflix's most popular is 14 currently. You might see it hit 20. And then that's why, though, they're looking at other areas of, of revenue. It's why they're looking at games. It's why they're right. looking into interactive live experiences. It's why Disney has a parks business. Like, it's, yeah. you know, it's like that's their thing. It's, streaming has to, they will increase the revenue as much as they need to and they'll hit to, get to a point where they're cash flow positive and they've got all, all their shareholders are happy and they want to continue to make that money. But it's going to become a part of the business. It will not just be the core business and the more interesting company will be Netflix figuring that out because that's their whole thing is streaming. I mean, but you could say up until 2010, it was sell, it was uh, mailing DVDs um, versus Dis- for everyone else, for Disney, for NBC Uni, for Warner, they are um, figuring out how to kind of bring meet the audience where they are while also expanding on their own businesses and figuring out what to do with, you know, theatrical and and everything. And so more businesses will pop up. I imagine that um, this colloquial metaverse that Mark Zuckerberg and Satya Nadella and all of them want to launch uh, will be very, very exciting for content makers uh, because entertainment is the easiest form into getting people involved in something. It's the easiest thing for us to understand as humans. It's to watch something. It's to play something. Um, and so I imagine if you are a Netflix or, or, or Disney or whomever, you're kind of looking at whatever the metaverse ends up becoming, if that's just VR times 10, whatever it is, 
they are happy to kind of look at that. You know, Disney does this with Fortnite to an extent where they have their skins. So Netflix will brand out. But I think for consumers, you know, 20 to 22, 23 for a popular plan, maybe close to 30 for like a 4K premium, you know, for users on one plan type situation. Mm. It's a lot. We'll see. We'll see how that works. Do you think that Netflix, like Disney, has sort of done this accidentally because it's just sort of picked up Hulu and had the separate ESPN business? But do you see a scenario where um, a company like Netflix might start to diversify in terms of content streams too, and say we've got this other mm. kind of content or even another channel or another app that's a separate fee that that you can choose to have or not? Yeah, I mean, Amazon did this, right? Within the Prime Video situation, it was like you could buy channels. Apple, of course. Sure, sure. But they're re- sort of resell- reselling other people's channels. I'm just I'm right, wondering right. if Netflix would, would start to say, well, we can only push Netflix oh, so far. But I mean, and you mentioned the games. They're rolling out games. I could see how they, they end up having a a uh, a premium Netflix and a non-premium Netflix and you don't get the games and maybe there's some other content you don't get. But it just it just struck me that one of the advantages Disney has is that they don't just sell Disney Plus. They also sell the Disney Plus Hulu ESPN Plus bundle. Mm-hmm. And that's another way to boil that frog is to keep adding, you know, you, you if you want other, we, we, we make other content that is not on this plan that you have to pay us a totally different amount of money to also get. I don't know if Netflix would go there or if it's too complicated. I think they are looking at any potential growth structure mm. and saying, like, what do we do? Because I think they are. I think Netflix has started to kind of talk about Flywheel without mentioning Flywheel. Like, they're thinking about how, you know, I think Squid Game really showed to them, like, we could be a merch company. We could be a interactive experience company. We could be a podcast company. Like, we can be all these companies and have this kind of revenue streams coming in that we then maybe not split off from the company, but we split off into their own separate situations. Different products. Um, I think they're still five, six years out. I think they're still at a point where they're profitable. They they are at a point where their content is still still pretty in demand, that they can do incremental price increases, especially not that I'm saying there will be one in February, but like especially after their Q4s typically or right coming into Q4, like the season we are now coming into where it's going to be a lot of high profile content coming out. Um, like they're okay and they're in a pretty good place. I think they're very much looking at what the next step is and how to build out and build out up and build upon what they have. But I think consumer wise, like your, your question is like, w- will we get to forward $60? I uh, know. Cause then right. I think they, I think Netflix would then have to start offering sports. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think you're right. Um, Corey wrote in and said, I wonder if you could mark somewhere at the end of your show, Google doc, good knowledge, Corey, that at some point I'd love to get an explanation on why I'm still seeing ads while play- paying Peacock 10 bucks a month for their premium tier. <laughs> Is this just the remnant of the outdated over the year ad based paradigm? I've seen other services insert minimal ads at the beginning of the show uh, or movie, but to have intermittent interruptions, Peacock says due to streaming rights, a small amount of programming, Peacock channels, live events, and a few TV shows and movies will contain it. It's obviously live makes sense, right? Cause they're pulling a, a live channel and putting it in anyway Corey says i feel like i'm back in 1985 watching the movie of the week i think Corey answered his own question here which is yeah they, nbc obviously has some deals where at, where they've got the content but they have to put ads in it and those are the hulu had this for a while too and i think it's mostly mm-hmm. gone away where they originally were like yeah you can buy hulu ad free but abc shows are still gonna have ads and i think that's all starting to fade away because They've now, once you create an ad free product, you do actually need to live up to it eventually. Yeah. I mean, like, 
or you just asked my favorite question, which is it's it's annoying and it's especially the way I think the reason that it's annoying is because they market it as Peacock Premium and so therefore yeah. their whole thing is like watch without ads. Oh, except these few things. And if yeah. you stumble upon these few things, my take on peacock is that they have marketed this as those some few titles but it ends up being more titles than you would expect if you're paying ten dollars a month versus the five dollar a month right. you know uh, peacock premium that's you know with ads uh and so it, it it's a little bit concerning that they are trying to market this product is like you can do ad free and it's got everything you need but also some titles and it's actually a considerable amount seem to have advertising i think that's something to um, jason's point they have contractual rights. They mm. cannot break those. But that should be just much more upfront. Yeah. I think it's. I think it's. They've got weird deals that still have this in, and they all need to yeah. expire. And they're not there yet. And because they didn't have this product when they made those deals, and so they're like, oh, okay, got to guess we got to put ads in these. I think it'll work itself out. But um, you're right. It's super annoying. There's nothing more infuriating than that. I actually was thinking about you talk about live, like live stuff, like it's live stuff from a TV channel that has ads in it. So we're going to stream mm-hmm. the ads too. Like you watch a local TV show on Paramount plus where you've bought no ads and like your local TV channel showing survivors still going to have the ad breaks because it is, it's, it's not, it's not that part. And I know that's, that's complicated uh, a little bit, but I, when we talked about sports earlier, I had that thought, which is, I wonder if they'll tr- experiment with doing an ad free tier on sports because Sports, they're going to have the ads. My guess is no. My guess is like you're going to pay yeah. for it and you're going to still see ads. But I did have yeah. that thought of like, what What if you could pay $10 more and when it's in between innings, they just show the ballpark and you don't have to listen to the ads. After watching I'm the entire am- baseball postseason, I would pay it. I'm imagining I'm imagining poor advertiser executives being told they can't advertise yeah. on MLB yeah. games. That's that's why it's not going to happen, right? Is that is that part of the way you you uh you make up for the shortfall of all that money that we we're talking about them losing because of everything that's going on? Part of the way you make it back up is that you still sell ads. It's a live sporting event, so you still sell ads. So in addition mm-hmm. to the money you're making on the subscription fee, you're also making money on ad revenue. And who knows? Maybe part of their deal is sharing some of the ad revenue with the cable company. And the cable company sell produces the show and sells the ad revenue. And you know, like it's all part of the negotiation. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think I think that's one of the ways they'll keep their money. Okay, we're gonna end with Australia. We got three letters from Australians. <laughs> Um, I love Australia. Amazing. So uh, Ben wrote in, hello from the plus six one. It's Australia. The rise of streaming services over the last 10 years has been fantastic for viewers, especially those of us outside the U.S. With so much competition for subscribers and many companies throwing huge sums at winning in the space, we now have access to basically all the old content we could ever have dreamed of. And there's a slew of new stuff coming out all the time. Plus, it's generally available on demand, ad-free, and globally the same day, and it's cheap. It's no surprise that a focus on winning the viewer has been great for the viewer. However, once the land rushes over and growth is slowed, I fear the drift of the gaze from viewer to revenue and the inevitable descent into the bad old days with unskippable, unavoidable, unmentionable ads. Julia, Jason, tell me I'm wrong, please. (laughs) Love to your mothers, Ben. Well, I mean, I don't, I, 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 I. It's a good point. He, I think he nailed again. I think you answered your own question, which is that gaze is I, like here. It's already like everything is being raised. The gaze will shift. Like it's gonna happen. They they always get their money, Ben. They they need their I, money. I, 
I do feel like so I do feel because of how successful Netflix has been without ads and because of Netflix continu- continued success without ads, Disney Plus's continued success without ads, um, HBO Max growing uh, well, now they have an ad tier, but you know, I think what we will see is much more options. I think you'll see um, and Netflix will be the last to this, but I think you'll see a lot of them say cool once we get to our $20 point right like it's the most popular plan you can get a cheaper one with ads and the advertisers want to be here because they want to be on the content i do think there is a a a sizable consumer base that is going to say no i i will pay literally anything to not have to deal with advertisements Mm -hmm. ever again uh and and though they will say cool we're going to make the most money off you anyway so we want to give you that option Um, but for everyone else Here's another option because to Jason's point, these companies want to make money however they can make money and the advertisers want to be where consumers are and that is in streaming – that is on streaming services. The, so th- the we beauty see- of doing uh, streaming versus linear is you can offer alternate versions. So – and like I feel like this is now such a standard that it's never that, – that it would be – a bad decision business-wise to not offer an ad-free premium plan. So I feel like, I mean, there are experiments with it. Amazon has IMDb TV, which has ads in it, and there's like Tubi. But I feel like most of these premium streaming services, like there will almost always be an ad-free tier. And you just have to pay to not see ads. And then they'll be like, okay, fine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I feel like... That's exactly it. And they're very happy to get both. So yeah. I don't think it's going to be a world where everything is um, like pop up ads all over the place again, or, or we're dealing right. with five, six back to back ads like mm-hmm. we get on Hulu or whatever, or Peacock, which are terrible. Um, but I do think you'll see much more options coming out, which is great. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, moving on to our next Australian letter here in the new Australian letter segment, Derek wrote in to say as a longtime upgrade and now downstream listener based in Australia, I've come to know more about streaming services and content ownership in the U S than my own country. I was wondering whether on occasion you might focus on a particular market outside the U S uh, perhaps by bringing in a guest to compare and contrast the situation with the U S I imagine it would be instructive for listeners, regardless of where they live to understand better the way these global deals interact with local markets and how that is changing in the new scre- streaming landscape. Thanks for all you do. Derek, great. I, I love this idea. Me too. I love this I, idea. I, I actually think we can do one with, I have a pal who, um, long, long time television executive in Australia and is now oh. over at, I don't think he publicly announced, but he's over at a big company in Australia. Uh, and so I would love to get him on. Let's do it. Um, I would love to do an episode on South Korea, an episode on Japan, mm-hmm. an episode on Irish comedies and British comedies and how those are kind of becoming this in, insanely in-demand thing across everywhere. Um, I think, yeah, we in the U.S. in general deal with a U.S.-centric problem. Uh, <laughs> and, and, I mean, a, a lot of the So this is the epicenter of it. But you're right. It is happening elsewhere. And I love the idea of bringing in people to talk about what's going on with uh, with their version of the yes. streaming wars in whatever country they're in. So um like, yeah, tap your Australian friend and we'll get Mike Hurley to explain to us how bad it is in the UK at some point. Um, and and the, that'll be great. So so thank you for the suggestion, Derek. We will uh, we'll get on it. We'll get on it. It's a great idea. 
Um, and then our final Australian letter comes from Jacob, who says, Net- next to Netflix and Disney+, Plus, the two most prominent streaming services in Australia are probably Stan and Binge, both lo- owned by local media companies. How do you see this kind of local service holding up to international competition? Binge, for example, is home to most HBO and FX content in the country. With FX shows ending up on Star, Disney+, Plus, and the coming international rollout of HBO Max, I'm not sure how they'll justify their continued existence. Do you see a place in the future for services that are reliant on catalog content? Cheers, Jacob. It's a great question. Mm-hmm. It is arguably the question. I would say out of any question being asked, it is the most important, which is all these U.S., uh, but also who are global conglomerates, U.S.-based but global conglomerates, are focusing their attention on international there the u.s is they they have it it's it's oversaturated they're still they're still trying to build up a subscriber base and a customer base they're still very very in tune to the u.s but they're looking everywhere else they're looking at um um i was going to say china they're not looking at china they're looking at india they're looking at portugal they're looking at brazil they're looking at russia they're, they want they're looking at australia yep. and new zealand and I think what we will see is a bit of a combination. I think for the niche streaming services, they may they may partner, as to your point, like the ones who are owned by the broadcasters may figure out what to do with local content. Um, the global guys, especially at Disney Plus and Star, go, well, we have our franchises and we want to come in. I think Netflix and Amazon Prime Video uh, and HBO Max are the most likely to say we want to partner with local creatives. We want to take a, you know some of this content you would give to Stan or Binge or, or the local broadcasters. We want that. What we've seen happen with Netflix a lot is they've worked with the local broadcasters where they said, we understand that you have regional issues. So the a great example is in France, a lot of those shows can't leave France, so the broadcasters have the exclusive rights to it. The local streaming services owned by the broadcasters will play them. And Netflix goes, Great, it's a great show. We want the globe we want global rights. Right. We want to take it any everywhere else, call it a Netflix original outside of it. And so you might see more of that where these streaming services exist because of regional um um reasons in those territories and they're fine, but they probably won't grow increasingly. Um, but I think you'll see a lot of people, a lot of the U.S. global major conglomerates come in and say, we like the show. We would like to bring it to our audience in um, Spain or wherever, and we would like to pay you to do that. So I think that's what you'll see a lot of. I think that there's a real chance that um, that some niche streamers will continue to exist. But like mm-hmm. whether I don't know about these streaming services in particular, but the idea that they're 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 kind of like your home for this U.S. content uh, in Australia, that's probably going to end, um, because the, most of those uh, content owners are going to want to be in Australia with their own product, unless they buy them out, which is also a possibility. But there's also the scenario where they survive and or are integrated into some other thing They're They are specializing in Australian content or they're specializing in other content that's not available in Australia elsewhere. Um, I think about like Acorn and BritBox as niche streaming services in the U.S. Those are essentially, and I don't know if they exist in Australia, but essentially I think there's a market for niche English language programming from broadcasters in uh, all the English language countries that just is not something that is going to go global on Netflix or Amazon because I don't I don't know if everything is going to go global and so BritBox is a great example and Acorn where it's like it's just a lot of obscure British TV catalog content and some new content and they the the British broadcasters put it together and said we could sell this in the rest of the world let's sell let's do it um, I th- I would like to think that some of that stuff will survive only because I think that 
the the big global brands are going to have limits to what they're going to be interested in in selling and that there will be stuff left over that will be like it's too niche for netflix but somebody else will find value in it that's exactly it. i think the big guys go in and pick and choose and they go this makes sense for us based on what we see our audience base do or we think this could you know become a squid game or whatever um and then to jason's exact point i think there's always going to be i mean there there's a there was there's there's a streaming service for k-drama k-drama specifically and that's probably seen a bit of an increase after squid game i think also, niche streaming services have this beautiful um, um, uh, advantage of having extremely low overhead costs. And if they build up a pretty good base, a pretty high revenue. So you've got something like Crunchyroll, which is like extremely low overhead cost, but a huge kind of subscriber base for what they are. You know, only about it's only about three to four million, but for what they're doing for a very niche offering, very, very good. And so they're like, we're going to really appeal to the anime super fans, right? Niche streaming services are super fans. All the big guys are um, mainstream kind of offering. And so Netflix comes in and goes, yeah, yeah, we want Death Note or we want Attack on Titan or My Hero Academia, which are massive, 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 massive anime series. And Crunchyroll goes, great, we want those too, but we can also offer these much more um, lesser known anime series that the super fans want. And we'll we'll have a a really, really valuable subscriber base because that subscriber base is like in it like the churn is low like they're there for the whole thing um so yeah i don't think they're going away i do think you will see them kind of work in tangent with the bigger guys but also uh, people in australia i imagine because i'm thinking of people in the u.s like content from every from so many different places but they also love their homegrown australian content so you'll always have that and netflix will not cater to that as much or disney plus will not cater to that as much right Right, so there'll be a, there'll be a mix, and I think that's that's okay. Yeah, your example of oh, yeah. um, of streamers um, choosing the content, I, I'm reminded that like Doctor Who is on HBO Max, but the old Doctor Who from 1963 through 1989 or whatever, that's on BritBox, right? Like it's like this yes. is pretty niche. HBO Max doesn't really want it. And it provides value elsewhere for, um, I think it's BBC and ITV that run BritBox. So uh, so that's where it goes. And if you want to see the old Doctor Who stuff, you, you know, you can do it. You just have to go to BritBox and it, you'll there'll be a lot of cozy mysteries there. And Graham Norton will be there. And like, that is a really great niche. I, I am a subscriber. That is a really great niche service. Um, and I don't think they're going to go away. But I do think for Stan and Binge, I don't know the details here, but like the business model of being the outlet that picked up all that content because they didn't have an international outlet yet, that's probably going to end, but it doesn't mean they can't survive. Yes. And, uh, and, uh, thank you to all our Australians for writing in. Watch out for drop bears. Don't get bitten by any spiders or eaten by any sharks. My understanding is that Australia is very dangerous. Anyway, uh, if you have a question for us, email downstream by going to relay.fm slash downstream. That's our show page and clicking on contact. Or you can just send an email to relay dot or downstream at relay.fm. It, we got a mailbox. I check it every fortnight <laughs> and there's mail from Australia and it. it's very exciting. You can also just tweet at us at, at, at downstream pod. Uh, you can find Julia at Loudmouth Julia on Twitter and at ParrotAnalytics.com, of course. You can find me at JSnell on Twitter and at SixColors.com. And again, every episode of the show is at Relay.fm slash Downstream or in your podcast player of choice. Uh, and we'll be back in two weeks. But until then, Julia, it's been great talking to you. Talk to you next time. Later, Jason. <laughs>